Hello, and welcome to Unseen Being, our monthly show where we talk to artists, scientists, and each other about what the hell is happening inside our brains and bodies when we experience the world around us. We explore some of the intangible and overlooked experiences that contribute to the way we feel. What happens at the center of our experiences when we listen to music, walk in nature, sit on our phones, make morning coffees, zone out and get into the flow, or simply dance around the room. All of these tiny micro experiences contribute to the way we feel, act and behave. So in this podcast, we take you on a mini journey of self-discovery, exploration, and feed your curiosity about some of the most overlooked yet instrumental elements that contribute to your well-being. Consider this an audio handbook curated by artists, scientists, philosophers, and technologists, a critical guide to understanding the well-being of experience in the current age. We bring you the latest in scientific discoveries, but cut the academic jargon and help enhance your understanding of the way everyday experiences impact you, and potentially an understanding of some of the tiny changes you can make to improve the way you feel. We are Robin and Catherine, and together we're the founders of Kindest Studios, a creative science studio that explores the aesthetics of human experience. We look at the neuroscience of art's impact on well-being and human connection, and believe that connection to self, others, and the environment is fundamental to human experience. Welcome to this week's episode on synchrony. Now, you probably have noticed synchrony all around you from birds flying together, but in humans also, we're just starting to explore this strange phenomena, which occurs everywhere, and when you start to see it, you see it more and more. We see physiosynchrony of heartbeats and brainwaves, biological synchrony of movement, and even synchrony of the way we speak. Be interesting to see if anyone can pick it up with me and you, Robin. <laughs> so in this week's episode, we're going to talk to two amazing people, Matthias Sperling, the choreographer, and Professor Daniel Richardson, the experimental psychologist. What's wonderful about these two is that whilst one is a creative, one is a scientist, they have worked together for numerous years trying to understand humans from an interdisciplinary lens, exploring research questions to discover more about why humans move together, act together, think together. So to start us off, though, what do we really mean by synchrony? Because I think a lot of people listening might be familiar with synchronization of their bodies, like dance or in in movement, or even like when we go to a gig, we know that people are kind of moving in time with each other. But what about people matching their feelings or thoughts or even our physiologies? I think it's important to also, like at the top here, just talk about how synchrony is so important right now in the notion of connection to each other, right? Absolutely, because one thing we do know is that when we synchronise, we tend to connect. Now, of course, there's lots of different types of synchrony. We're going to focus mainly on behavioural synchrony in this episode. This sort of specific interpersonal physical synchrony that can be intentional or unintentional. Emily Butler, who directs the Health and Interpersonal Systems Research Group, that said moving in synchrony creates feelings of trust and closeness between people. And as we'll find out, this is part of Daniel's work as well. So you have two main forms of synchrony. In phase, where you behave in the same way as others. For example, you might fold your arms when your friends do. Or antiphase, when you take turns. For example, in conversation. One person talks, the other person listens, but you automatically know when to respond. 
And we've seen, as Robin mentioned, that this synchrony makes us feel trust, it makes us feel close to each other. We've seen that even if you just tap on a table at the same time as somebody, you're more likely to be helpful to them. Mm. This sharing of bodily movement builds closeness between very diverse people in the same way that dancing promotes social cooperation. And of course, it doesn't just happen between individuals, but also you get synchrony of groups as well, which is incredibly important for things like social action or sort of social joint behaviour. We will later discuss with Daniel troops marching in synchrony and what that can mean. But also things like people singing in church together is in this time where we're desperately trying to understand how to connect better, be it in real life or in digital realms. Synchrony plays a part because we are never alone. We survive in groups, we act in groups, we think in groups. And so interpersonal relationships are absolutely key to human experience. 100%. And really just to, to punctuate why this is so important today, synchrony is a form of communication within itself. And we'll get onto this, especially the way that Matthias talks about some of these things later in the episode. But it's really about how we can facilitate connection with other individuals beyond words. We've spoken about this before in, in previous episodes about how language really can only take us so far and how a lot of the time there aren't words to really capture how we feel or really capture an experience in itself, which is why we're thrilled to bring you our first guest, Professor Daniel Richardson, experimental psychologist at UCL, whose works looks at the synchrony across individuals in both our brains and bodies and how that allows us to relate to one another as well as ourselves. There's, sort of, there's a broad phenomenon that we're interested in. They sort of start at the, the, the broadest stuff, which is that when two people interact, they just become more similar, mostly if they like each other. Uh, and you can see this at lots and lots of levels. Uh, so you can see it in the language choice that they use. They will copy each other's speech rate. Uh, they will start to copy each other's accent. You're getting a little bit of my weird Swindon, California hybrid accent. Just leeching into your voice. I apologize for that. Uh, we copy each other's syntactic structures. If you use a particular form of, of syntax, other people will copy that as well. You pick up the speech rhythms and also you coordinate your eye movement before we even talk about gestures and body movements. All of these behaviors seem to align. We seem to copy each other. And there's various sort of theories about why that might be. We might just be signaling affiliation. So we, is it just affiliative? We're just signaling that I like you because I'm also pulling my ear at the same time. Or is it something to do with the information that we're processing? So if I use a particular syntactic structure or a particular word choice or I say phenomenology and then you copy it, that makes our communication easier because we're sort of sharing the same linguistic tools. So it could just be purely information-based. If you look at the same thing at the same time as me, well, you're getting the same visual input. Maybe that's why we coordinate our, our attention in that way. So there's lots of theories around why we might do this synchrony. Is it just helping our behavior along or is it helping us socially? And we're at the point of trying to untangle these things at my lab and many other labs as well. Is it always social or is it cognitive in some way? Uh, what happens if I don't like you, right? What happens if we're having an argument? I don't want to copy your gesture to give you the impression that I like you because we're having a furious row, but I do want to communicate with you and I do want to convey my point well. So at what point am I going to copy your language? How am I going to copy your linguistic structures as well? We're just figuring this out. 
But somehow, some dance of that information we're exchanging and those social cues, it's all being played out in the, the coupling of our, of our body movements and our language choices and all these different levels of behavior. I love that Daniel calls it a phenomena because there is really so much we don't know yet or haven't explained from science. But what we do know, and I think what the pandemic has really brought us a focus on, is that we don't live in isolation and we don't do well as humans in isolation. You know, and it's not just our physical interactions that are important to the way we live, but our emotional interactions too. And so I suppose this idea of connection is a combination of those. It's the way we interact physically and the way we interact emotionally. And that's something that we can see when we're trying to study synchrony in both the body and the way we move and what's going on inside of us. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, Daniel's point as well, about this dance of information exchange. And going back to what we were saying before, we we think to exchange mostly information via words. But interpersonal synchrony uh, often has this really translation, this exchange of information between individuals that we don't even realize is happening perhaps on a conscious level. You know, have you ever walked away from a situation and felt a huge connection with someone without many words exchanged? Or the closeness that you might feel with strangers shared in an experience. One recent study found that people can actually infer other people's heartbeats simply by looking at their faces. But it's really interesting in regards to how successful interactions with others might be actually related to observing these external signals in a person and how those external signals that they give off help us perceive kind of their internal state or their inner landscapes that helps us feel closer to them. As Daniel said, we have this unconscious mirroring of another's actions, and that's something that we all do without ever knowing it. You know, I don't really know, to be honest with you, how sneezes are contagious, but you sneeze when someone else has sneezed. We mirror each other all the time without knowing it. So simply, we can also mirror each other's heartbeats as well, which is driven by the same principle. And if you think about this idea that actually we studied in the last episode of embodiment of emotions, it kind of makes sense that a physical movement could lead to the shared feeling of an emotion. I mean, I but my whole 20s falling in love on tube trains, I would, would see someone across the carriage. And by the time I, I got off, I would just be absolutely convinced that this was the like love of my life. You know, I'd walk up the escalator with the tragic weight of knowing that I would never see him again in my life. <laughs> but actually, it was Daniel's work that showed that because of the movement of the tube train, it makes you rock back and forth in synchrony. And that really does start to make you feel like you are connected with this person opposite you. Yeah, and it's interesting when we're talking about synchrony with strangers in a public environment like the tube as well. Anything we do in a group is really inherently bonding. It produces affiliation and shared meaning and shared action and closeness ultimately. And I I love that idea of empathy, you know, because empathy is something that can be studied sort of creatively, but also scientifically. And we know is so important to to our very being, to our working together as groups. It's interesting, you know, I, I have a twin brother and a lot of people ask if we have some sort of telepathic, empathetic connection, um, I obviously lie and say yes, and, you know, we have a secret language, all these things. The answer is sort of no, but I do I do feel a closeness with him, and we do share many of the same sort of physical movements and, and the way we speak and things like that. I think the, sort of the idea of empathy, is, as Daniel pointed out, is even more 
obvious when you look at the synchronization of sort of heartbeats and brain waves uh, and this empathetic connection that occurs between relationships such as client and therapist you know where there's a need for a really important bond he explains a bit more if you think about physiological synchrony so the, the stuff that's happening under the skin so your heartbeat your respiration even your sort of electrodermal activity all these measures of your autonomic systems activity. If you look at this, there's lots of studies showing that in different contexts, we do synchronize. Um, If you are uh, in love with your partner and you look into their eyes, your heartbeats will start to synchronize um, a little bit. If um, there's a good client-therapist bond, you'll get some sort of synchrony in the physiology as well. I find it really fascinating, this idea about synchrony of emotions and nervous systems in relations. In fact, the synchrony that comes with that is not necessarily a good thing. You know, as we've seen, emotions can be contagious, and that's the same for bad emotions. In a fight with someone, your emotional state will escalate, and theirs will match, and that means all hell can break loose. We need to actually, in fact, in those situations, work, if we're in a relationship, almost like a single nervous system, self-regulating. When one person gets upset, the other person can regulate them down, as Daniel explains. The counter case is in therapy, and there have been studies of couples in therapy. And you would think, again, you want physiological synchrony because if two people like or love each other, they tend to synchronize, but not in the context of therapy. So if you and I were in therapy together, Catherine, and your heart is racing and my heart is racing too, that's probably us kicking off in a massive row. And the degree to which you have synchrony between two people in that context predicts divorce rates quite reliably. The successful couples are where your heart rate is going up and up and I'm shutting the hell up and listening and actually down-regulating. And later, I may get upset and it's your turn to quieten down and listen. So it's all very contextually based, lots of these things. It's a really interesting point here. And if we bring it back to kind of these everyday experiences that people can relate to, it's kind of interesting to think that in couples, opposites attract from each other. When we work as a unit and a cohesive group, we can really help each other emotionally regulate responses. So next time you might be having a fight with your partner or even your friend or anybody in your, you're in a relationship with anyways, just remember that if you didn't have this balance, you would not be able to perhaps regulate your nervous system in the same way. If we didn't have this balance, there'd be a danger in regards to when we look at social cohesion and in-group behavior. We forget to oversee that actually any of this in-group behavior can also lead to out-group aggression if we're not careful. I think it's an amazing point. We do a lot of study into the really positive side of social cohesion. But of course, where you have a group bonded together, there's also people on the outside of that. It's what Daniel referred to, to me as the dark side of synchrony. That's a meta-criticism of a lot of the synchrony work is that, well, how much of this stuff is just based on times when we kind of like each other and are kind of getting on? Because a lot of the experiments you do with sort of undergraduate volunteers, and it's really aversive to be an arsehole to someone else in a laboratory experiment. So we don't know a lot about what happens to synchrony in these sort of less positive situations, because experimentally, we tend to do nice ones because that's just a nicer experiment to run. 
Nothing is ever positive. There's a big dark side of this synchrony for exactly that reason. So if you look at singing, chanting at football matches, you find that the more they will, the crowd will sing and chant together, will predict that feeling of unity and that bond amongst the group. But it also correlates with violence after the game against the out group. So whenever, it's a beautiful fact about human nature, whenever you draw people together, you're also separating them from other people, right? You're always, you're increasing the bonding, but also increasing the hate, it seems. Sorry, since you raised like the negative aspects of sync, I have to tell you about one of my favorite experiments, which is done by a guy called Scott Wiltermuth in Stanford Business School. Let me just describe what happens if you are a participant. So you, you are part of this experiment and you turn up and you're told to walk up and down the car park with a few other people, principally the experimenter as well. And the two conditions are either you just walk up and down for about 10 minutes. And they say there's something to do with exercise or sort of physiological activity. And either you just walk up and down or you walk in time with him. They don't use the word marching, but you're basically marching in time with his uh, footsteps. So you do this for a little bit and then they say, okay, that's great. Let's check your pulse. That's that experiment. Now, can you do a different study? And they take you alone into a little uh, cubicle and they say, uh, this is a different study that's for the medical department. We're looking at production of a protein paste. And would like your help with this. And they say, uh, here is a box of wood lice. And they give you a box of live wood lice. You can see them running around inside. And they say, here is the grinder. And they point to a massive, it's actually a coffee grinder they got from a cafe, but sort of took the labels off. And they say, could you just spend 10 minutes and just put the bugs into that grinder for us? And then they close the door. And the dependent variable, which is you know one of my favorite dependent variables in psychology, is number of wood lice thrown to their death in the coffee grinder. Now, of course, because this is California, no animal was actually harmed. There's a little trap door so the little guys escape and they live another day. But you think you're throwing a little creature to its death. And what they find is you are more likely you throw, I think it's 50% more woodlice to their death if you've just been marching. And it's specific to it's only if the guy you are marching behind is the one asking you to do it. If it's a different grad student who's asking you, you don't have the effect. But you're more likely to throw more um, insects into the um, into the grinder, and you're also more likely to then spontaneously volunteer to press the button and start to turn them up. But as you say, of course, this is the reason all armies still march because, and it never—I mean, this is completely obvious, but never occurred to me until I read this work. If you're in the military, it's a really bad idea to stand in a line and walk slowly towards people. <laughs> we discovered this in the Second World War. Since you mentioned the machine gun, that is a bad tactic. So why do we still? do it, right? You never march on the battlefield, but you do on the parade ground all the time. And it's a purely psychological function. There's nothing to do with actual combat there whatsoever. But we think it's sort of the same thing. The reason that you get this negative effect is that it's sort of a loss of the sense of self. So if you're bonded with this group, when you're given sort of a, a moral challenge, uh, you feel less of that individual response and you feel like, well, he's asked me to do it and you go along with it. So it increases obedience. And that's another side of this being bonded to an in-group is obedience to it. That can have these negative consequences. 
Okay, but before we get all black mirror on everyone today, let's return to the more positive side. You know, this power of synchrony to move us, you know, it can be so vital to societies, especially when we're looking at things like rituals, you know, even looking at you know, when we have dinner with each other, we clink our glasses, people break bread, say grace before a meal, things of that nature. Even if you look at kind of Gen Z today and like kind of the new form of digital synchrony, look at all the TikTok videos that are happening with people learning dances together. And maybe you're only doing it as a couple, but then you watch those other people and then you do it yourself. And um, it's synchrony is happening around us all the time, everywhere that helps us bond to each other. And it really really is one of those vital parts of society that I think gets overlooked a little bit in regards to our relations with one another, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think there's often a sort of almost misconception that we don't have these sort of synchronous rituals and moments in Western society that we've lost it somehow. But actually, as Robin said, it really is everywhere, not just between sort of friends and people who know each other, but between strangers as well. Sort of the shared emotional live experience that you you share with strangers, such as going to a music concert, going to a play, or even a football match. Yeah, and there's no doubt that we can digitally synchronize as well. And there are loads of things that happen on a Zoom screen when somebody smiles just like there would be in real life. But we're so pleased to see, you know, live experiences coming back. Obviously on the show, we continue to bang on about connection, connection, connection. And I think, you know, up to this point, we've talked about the disconnection between people as a result of the pandemic and everybody being more in isolation. And so it's actually really refreshing to be able to come onto the show this month and and know that there's a bunch of live events in our diaries and there's lots of gigs that we're excited to be going to in the upcoming months to see how we can reshare in these live experiences Ironically, just before the pandemic hit, Daniel has done an incredible experiment to actually prove the power and the emotional connection that occurs between audience members at live and shared experiences. So we got involved in this project where we tracked the heart rate of people watching uh, Dream Girls the Musical in the West End and found all of this synchrony, found their heart rates were peaking at the same time, being driven by uh, by the plot, right? Everyone's heart goes up when she gets when she gets thrown out of the band and then she gets divorced. And you can see all the narrative, the story playing out in the arc of their shared heartbeats. It's really quite amazing to see all these things happen. Uh, we did it at the um, cinema as well, people watching Aladdin, that, that Disney movie. And when he has his first kiss, the audience's heart rates rise as well. And then we just did a study at the, we went to the opera and we did the same thing. And we tracked people's heart rates. And then we put a number on how coordinated, how synchronized they were. And we found it correlated really strongly with how spiritually uplifting people found that, how engaging, how transported they felt. So this idea of shared live experiences and its power is something really being explored a lot more deeply now for many reasons, you know. Most notably, a lot of the technology that's now in place that allows us to measure people in the real world. But it's only recently that we've kind of gone out of the labs into these real world contexts. And this is what gets us really excited at Kinda Studios and is really the focus of our work is going out into the real world and seeing what these real life settings are doing to our brains and bodies, which is why it's great to have our second guest on the show today, choreographer Matthias Sperling, who is a choreographer and lead artist for NeuroLive. And he's with us today to better understand how he explores the connection and synchrony that comes through 
through movement, both within dancers and their choreography and those experiencing the art form, i.e. the viewers watching the dancers on stage. He's been a long-term collaborator with Daniel, and they're both currently working on the cross-disciplinary project NeuroLive, which is a research collaboration that brings together artists and scientists and audiences to study what makes live experiences special. So we spoke to Matthias to find out a little bit more about what synchrony means to him. So I think synchrony is a kind of complex idea. And as a a choreographer and performer working in contemporary dance, in some ways, synchrony has been a kind of implicit thing in lots of um, my experiences over decades in dance. But also the more I've gone on, I think the more I think about synchrony in a variety of different ways. And actually the, the forms of synchrony that I'm most interested in now, that the ways I'm most interested in thinking about what synchrony might be, are maybe uh, less obvious or less conventional ways of thinking about synchrony. So for me, it's not necessarily about thinking, thinking of movement synchrony in terms of people looking the same or doing the same thing at the same time or having pre-decided a routine of movements that they then repeat and, and sort of deliver at the same time in the same space. Um, but rather, synchrony for me is maybe more about being in the same time and space and engaging in a shared process of finding something out and engaging in unitary synchrony on the one hand, this idea about um, moving at the same time in the same way and coupled coupled synchrony or distributed coordination being in relationship with one another in movement we're sharing the same journey we might be sharing the same set of questions we might be sharing the same movement task but we're each journeying through that in our own ways in relationship with each other in the moment we are moving together, we might be very related, very uh, synchronous with each other in, in lots of ways. I think thinking about synchrony in terms of being in relation maybe helps to uh, make it clear that if we're talking about synchrony as being in relation, then that's always present. It's, it's always something fundamental in our relationships with one another. We are, we are always in relation in one way or another. We are we are journeying together in different ways at different distances and different moments. I love what Matthias has said in here about the way we relate to other people and how there's so much in terms of relations to others that doesn't get translated in words. And we spoke about this in our episode about embodiment when we spoke to Jane Peake. And she specifically does a lot of um, work in contact improv, whereby you actually match the other person's body in an intuitive way without having any choreography in itself. And that's about how we communicate to people beyond words. You know, we talked also in that episode about this amazing term um, that Leanne Hamacott said, my body of knowledge. And that's really what it is. 
is, this body of experience when we move with others helps us relate. And so it's interesting to explore not just what relation feels like with others you're in movement with, but also how it feels as an audience member, how we share that time and space with those performers on stage. You know, whether or not it's a dancer on stage or it's a musician on stage or it's a poet on stage, the emotionality that gets translated through their work and how that really catches on to you yourself as well. We're all in the shared collective space creating together. So yeah, there's something for me that's very palpable about my experience of um, dancing together with Etiko and this experience of, um, yeah, really traveling together through a time and space and the being able to be in relationship with each other and to be taking a reading of one another and what one another is experiencing uh, as much as taking a reading of what we are experiencing ourselves and how we're reading the time and space that we're in. So that kind of uh, approach to being in relation during performance is really interesting for me. I love what Matthias has said because it's interesting to see um, how the audience can capture what the artist is really communicating. And so there has been actually some neuroaesthetic studies about this, about can you feel what I'm making? And I think the study was specifically done in regards to visual art. So do you understand the theme or the content, the narrative, the emotion of a piece that an artist is communicating with that? And I think that's interesting when talking about dancers in movement because when dancers are in movement, you can you can hear them breathing, you can hear their footfall, you can see their relations to another. And so to think about that contagion that happens from artist to uh, patron or to viewer participant, uh, it's interesting to see how the emotionality of the dancers actually makes you feel a certain way. And can you feel the emotions that I'm communicating in my work? I don't know, you see a lot of dance performances. What do you think? I do. I absolutely love those performances. I think because in a way it's this sort of communication of things there are no words for. Mm. And for me, that's an incredible thing to explore. The arts, of course, aren't the only forum where you can study synchrony. Uh, and we probably am quite biased because I do love dance and theatre. It's very much in my blood. One of the reasons why we obviously love New Alive and, and the work of Daniel Mateus is because they really believe, like us, that in order to study this connection, it has to be through a science and arts lens. And it's this interdisciplinary lens that Mateus also talks to us about really important to me is that in thinking about engagement between artistic and, and scientific working, artistic and scientific research and investigation, that um, the direction of the dialogue really goes both ways, so that each affects the other and each can speak to the other. And uh, so for me, I have been interested for a really long time in uh, reading about science, thinking about science, about uh, talking with scientists. And for me, that has particularly to do with body-mind relationship and the kind of inherent connections that that has for me with dance as a medium. If I'm thinking about dance and choreography as a, a medium that consists in embodied experiences, then thinking about embodiment is fundamental to shaping in a way, the, the scope of what the medium is and what the medium can do. So there's a kind of very direct connection for me, curiosity for me in that. I think that I'm not only absorbing ideas from science or that, that I've been doing that over the years, but I think I'm also trying to create a space in my work where 
different ideas, including scientific ideas about embodiment, can be kind of um, questioned and perhaps processed in particular ways, in felt sense ways, and can be speculated around, perhaps. Yeah, also the kind of imaginative layers around different ways of thinking about mind and body relationship, different ways of thinking about embodiment can be noticed. Yeah, it can be kind of conjured in different ways. Yeah, the kind of thinking about science, about embodiment, not just as a source of information, but as a kind of imaginary to notice and to examine and to speculate around is important to me. Questioning how important is it for science to, in quotes, discover or explain the relationship between mind and body in a complete sense. Um, just thinking about direction of the, the research that I'm really uh, invested in and have been for, for many years, I guess the artistic practice and the artistic research is uh, really about the importance of um, artistic ways of knowing contributing to richness of a, of a landscape of uh, culture and society. I mean, in one way, that's very concretely present in uh, something like the NeuroLife Project, where artistic ways of knowing and scientific ways of knowing are very much equal, both shaping one another. It's not about uh, the scientific work framing the artistic work, but it's also about the artistic work framing the scientific work. Both of those are possible. The different ways of knowing that are at play are really complementary and really interdependent as well. I really don't think that any of those different ways of knowing are really able to fully operate without each other. It's an interesting point that Matthias raises here about the art informing the science. And we've had this discussion a little bit before. And I think to date, a lot of work looks at this kind of exchange from how does science inform artwork? How do you express scientific insight into artworks? And it's interesting to look to build more of a circular exchange of how art also informs the science, which is really interesting with NeuroLive in specific when they go to see dancers in movement and those experiments then will inform what they're going to be testing next. And so it's looking at this bi-directional circular relationship between things as opposed to kind of this one-way transfer. Yes, that cross-pollination of ideas, which is really key to our studio ethos and something that is really exciting to investigate. We don't know that much. We're only starting to find out. And it is really exciting why people's brains are sinking, why their heartbeats are sinking. What is that connection? You know, Daniel said to me, it's interesting, we have so many names in physics for things like quarks and neutrons, and but we don't have very many names, words, for the sort of intangible things. There's one thing that I really want to discover, and I'm not sure quite sure how to do it, um, but uh, we have these tools and I have some great collaborators. And the thing that I'm really interested in, I think no one has a clue about this. Let me just tell you what it is. The issue is that if you are a performer, if you're on stage in front of a large number of people, you're an actor and a musician, or honestly, even if you're a lecturer um, like me, and you're giving your talk or you're, you're playing your music, you have a really strong sense of the energy of the crowd. You can tell if they're into you, you can tell if they're varying. And if you're a good performer, if you're a really good stand-up, you can play off that and you can slow people down and you can surprise them. And you can, you know, if you see someone at the top of their stand-up game, they can completely manipulate that energy of the crowd. And it's an amazing thing to see musicians too uh, can do it. But here's the thing. What are you actually, what's the signal there? 
what are you paying attention to in the audience? Well, you can't really see them, right? Because in most of these things, you've got the lights on you, not on them. So you've got very little visual information. There's some auditory information. If you're giving a lecture, you can hear people rustling. But if you're doing stand-up or playing music, you've got very little audible information. So what are you responding to? You have a really strong sense of the energy of the crowd. That may be an illusion, right? Maybe you're just telling yourself, I can tell exactly what they're thinking. And that's that's not true at all. So first of all, we have to test, well, can, if you're a performer, if you're on stage, can you read off how excited people are in that moment? We've got to prove that or not. Then if you can sense that, well, what is it that you're responding to? Is it movement? Is it a lack of movement? Because people get still when they're focused. What exactly is that signal? And I really would like to understand that with all the gadgets we have, right? Is it something about the joint respiration, right? Are you looking at the, is the reason the heart rate synchronizes when people are engaged is because they're all gasping at the same moment or sighing at the same moment. That breathing is doing it. And that's the thing that you can hear if you're performing, that sort of collective respiration or something. But I'd love to be able to figure out where that sense comes from. You're so acutely tuned to, even if I'm giving a boring lecture on, you know, brain regions, you can sense when people are getting bored. How do people get that from an audience? And how do they respond to it? I think what I what I really believe is that the impact of a particular performance or event or piece of work is, um, is so much uh, up to each individual who engages with it and the experience that they have uh, in their own engagement and the way that that resonates with them in the immediate presence of the performance or the experience as well as how it then ripples and resonates perhaps in, in reflection. So yes, watch this space and definitely go in and look out for the performances that are about to start for Neuro Live. There are so many exciting avenues to explore and they bring all our favourite topics together. The mind, the body, arts and science, embodiment, ritual, which have been previous episodes and even an upcoming episode, introception. Yeah. It actually leads us on very well to next month's episode, all about interoception, which is your ability to sense your internal body sensations. Uh, And it's interesting that interoception has been linked to synchrony in some ways. While it's still early research, there is some studies to show that the feeling of being able to sense your interior states may be a gateway to being able to sense the interior states of others, allowing you to simulate their body movements yourself, or even making you more empathetic and socially sensitive. So more on interoception next month. Whatever the explanation, we know that connection is a real thing. It's a powerful part of who we are and our interconnected communities. So powerful that it's naturally become part of our everyday life. From marching together to sharing a nervous system regulation with your boyfriend to the creative arts. It's everywhere because we do not exist alone. In fact, we cannot exist alone. So from heartbeats and brainwaves, rave scenes, dancing, singing, to simply walking in step with someone, we hope the synchrony continues to be explored by artists and scientists alike to drive greater connection between us when, well, at a time we really do need it most. Mm, Definitely. So we want to thank you all for joining us today as usual. And a huge thanks to both Matthias and Daniel, uh, whose work you can find on neurolive.info. Neurolive is also headed up by the head scientist Guido Orgs at Goldsmiths University. So check it out. There's some really interesting performances coming up at Siobhan Davies Studio. And uh, we will see you next month on Unseen Being. And for now, have a great weekend.